15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello once again and thank you for joining us. This is the Space Nuts podcast with Andrew Dunkley, your host. And uh, this is episode 257. Wow. And we only started last week. And joining me as always is uh, the good Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large. Hello, Fred. Hi, Andrew. How are you doing? I am well, sir. How are you? In fact, I know how you are because... You're a very happy man today and a very proud dad because um, your son has um, achieved greatness. Yeah, he's going to be more famous than either of us, Andrew. <laughs> he's uh, won the 20- That's wonderful. 2021 Penguin Literary Prize for his novel Denizen, which will be published next year by Penguin. It's just brilliant news. It's blown us away, I can tell you. Oh, that's wonderful, yeah. wonderful news. Yeah, it's very great. We're very, and of course, very best proud. of all, he... Um, he lives where I live. He does. He shares your city with you. In it, it's wonderful for him. And uh, uh, you know, uh, he, he was up against some pretty stiff competition. That is a big prize to win. It's huge. Yeah. And uh, what's, the, what's the book about, Fred? Uh, it's about life in the uh, rural Australia and how difficult it is uh, to... And, and I understand that having lived there, lived in Coonabarabin, as you know, for 25 years. And mm. um, a lot of things uh, are not as easy as they are in the city, uh, in, in particular some sort, you know, different sort of medical uh, uh, help uh, are not as readily available. But it's fairly raw, is life in the country, in Australia. And um, uh, James has written about the the difficulties, the, uh, the ups and downs, uh, and it's a novel... Um, some people describe his novels as, as bleak. Um, and my, I, I read this novel in a first draft uh, about five years ago. Uh, and uh, yes, it was bleak, but it wasn't as bleak as the one before it. So I thought, oh, he's going in the right direction. <laughs> and so he was. He's won the prize. We're blown away. Oh, that's marvellous. Yeah, it is, it is um, a different world living living yeah. out here. I've been out here for 27 years now and uh, 30 if you count my time in Tamworth. Yep. And yeah, it, it's a completely different world. And, and um, it, it's hard to explain to people who've never been out here what it's like. And they assume that it's the, uh, forgive the phraseology, the butthole end of the mm. world. And there were even um, there, there are even people who think that we we don't have um, tar on the roads uh, and uh, you know or, or running water or electricity. I mean, there's some of the misconceptions. Uh, we do have disadvantages. Yeah, he, uh, health services are often uh, well well behind that of the city, uh, especially in the smaller re- regional towns. Um, uh, you know, but. It's not a horrible no, life. I don't want. No. You know, I don't want people to misunderstand. Yeah. It's, it's lovely living out here. I, I adore it. I would much prefer to live here than in Sydney. I, I, that, I was and, just going to say the same thing. It really has an upside as well. We we shouldn't paint it black because it is. It's a different life, and it, it's got yes. freedom that you don't have in the city. And it's a great place to bring up kids. Absolutely, yeah. like. Um, I, I can cross the city in 15 minutes and I can get to work in five. So, you know, that's a huge plus. Yeah. 
no public transport issues. Uh, it is, you know, it's got its plus sides. You can even get a good cup of coffee here. So, oh yeah, you, know, you can. I, I know. And I couldn't do that any. I couldn't do that anywhere in Europe. <laughs> I'll tell you now. <laughs> no, that's right. <laughs> no, it's good. Yeah. So. Uh, anyway, that's wonderful, wonderful news about James. Please pass on our congratulations. Mm-hmm, I will. Now, today, Fred, we're going to uh, just do a bit of a follow-up on the Chinese Mars mission. Uh, Asteroid uh, 16 Psyche or 16 Psyche, uh, it may not be what we originally thought it was. So what is it? It could be a space doogie. Uh, There's um, uh, been breaking news overnight uh, that we can only now tell you. Uh, they, They think they know what's caused a mysterious dip in the brightness of the star Betelgeuse or whatever you want to call it. It can be pronounced different ways. We'll also be answering uh, questions from Nate in Oregon, who has a fascinating uh, story that could could well be turned into a sci-fi uh, book. Nate, I, I like the concept. Uh, and Paul from Pennsylvania is uh, asking us personal questions today, Fred. Oh, I'm not sure about... We need, I think it's dangerous going down that road. That's our personal But uh, we, we, will, we will take yeah. the risk. We will, indeed. But first up, uh, Fred, let's um, uh, revisit the uh, wonderful mission the Chinese are uh, currently conducting on the surface of Mars. Um, there's, there's been a, a further update. I actually saw a great photo the other day. Uh, the Chinese rover set down a remote camera and then backed off and took, took a, a selfie with the lander in the background. It's a terrific photo. Um, it is. It's wonderful. And that, that's uh, really why I highlighted this as a, you know, an update. So exactly as you've said, they, they detached a camera, left it just lying on the ground, and then backed off the rover uh, and did it, you know, nicely posed it in front of the camera. And you've got this marvellous shot looking along, <clears throat> excuse me, looking along the soil surface of Mars. And what you see is something that you, mm. it looks just like your back garden, really. You know, it's it's, it's just kind of soil and few a few small rocks well, and so on. Maybe maybe your, your back garden in Las yes. Vegas. Well, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> it is. It's a bit like that. Uh, of course, it's got the orangey pink sky, and there's uh, Zhurong, the <clears throat> excuse me, the Chinese rover, uh, looking a lot like. Um, a praying mantis with its wings outstretched, but with wheels instead of legs. Uh, it's an extraordinary image, yeah. and you know, full marks to the China National Space Administration for for doing that, because that's something that uh, NASA hasn't done. We've had selfies of Perseverance and Curiosity and all the rest of them, but they've all all been taken by the onboard camera, um, which is on a kind of swivel mm. arm. This is a a great trick, and there's a, a bit of a, a sort of follow up to it, <clears throat> uh, Andrew, as well. In that, uh, I think that um, picture was taken on. I think it was the 11th of June when the the selfie was taken. But a few days earlier, um, NASA's Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter overflew the site. Uh, I think on the 6th of June, if I remember rightly. Um, and you will know because we've talked about it before that onboard Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter is a is a high resolution camera called HiRISE. It's the High Resolution Imaging Science Experiment. I think that's what the acronym stands for. And so HiRISE has taken a downward view of more or less the same thing. The rover's in a slightly different position, but uh, but it shows the lander and the rover, and you can see the discoloration of the of the soil surface where the exhaust has has blown dust yeah. to stuff away. But it's very nice to have that confirmation. And in fact, it's um, it's a useful thing as well because the the camera on board Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter 
can see much finer detail than the cameras on board uh, Tianwen-1, which is the orbiter that uh, the, the Chinese have in orbit around Mars, the one that sent the rover down to the surface. Mm. Um, and so uh, NASA can see finer details, and of course these images are freely available. So the Chinese will have a much better idea because of that image of what the surrounding terrain is for the um, you know for the for the rover to to cope with as it makes its uh, its little journeys around the landing site in Utopia Planitia. Yeah, it, it looks reasonably hospitable, I suppose. Uh, it, from, it, it from does, space. yeah. There was a comment made from people, I think, at the University of Arizona that they've chosen a really, really good place to land it. It's very, very smooth. Uh, you know, it's um, uh, not somewhere that's littered with uh, rocks and, and boulders. It's actually a, a really good site. Mm. Do we know how far they're planning to send the rover, how wide so, it's going to um, travel? The, the, yes, there, there was a comment uh, made by, again, this is uh, writers from the University of Arizona, uh, and that is to compare it with U-22, um, uh, which is the Chinese rover on the moon. It's still doing its thing uh, on the far side of the moon. Uh, and U-22 has travelled uh, about three quarters of a kilometre in two years. Um, and so given that the similar technology is in use on Jurong, uh, I suspect that's about the limit of its its range. But that, in, mm. you know, that distance includes some really interesting features, in, interesting craters uh, and and other things that um, really might be of, of interest to, uh, uh, to, to the, the science team who are operating Jurong. So, yeah, it's a, it's a great outcome. Um, very, very interesting stuff too. But a lovely picture. The selfie is just oh, great. <laughs> yeah, well worth looking up. It's, uh, it's a terrific image. And uh, yeah, I guess there'll be more to hear from from this particular yeah. mission. It's uh, it's been pretty exciting uh, this year on Mars uh, with, with everything has. that's going on. And who who knows what they might be able to announce in um, the not too distant future? So we'll we'll keep an ear to the ground in that regard. Now, uh, asteroid uh, sixteen Psyche. Uh, it's starting to look like it is not what we thought it was. What did we think it was? <laughs> uh, well. From my personal experience, I've known about 16 Psyche since I was a master's student because it's one of the um, asteroids that I used in uh, when I was writing my master's thesis on asteroid orbit. So it's an old friend, is 16 Psyche, but it's also um, famous as an asteroid because for some years now, uh, astronomers have thought that what we're seeing in this asteroid is the the, the metal core of a protoplanet, and a protoplanet is mm. what planets grow out of as they're being formed. Um, and this is a protoplanet that's had its rocky mantle knocked off, leaving behind just the metal core, because we know it's highly metallic. Uh, we can tell from you know, measurements that its surface is, is very, very metallic. Um, it's about 200 kilometres across. It's, it's one of the bigger asteroids, um, not a small object. Uh, and indeed, um, you know, all, all the speculation that we can talk about now is going to be set to rest in, I think, about four years because there's a mission uh, going to 16 Psyche. Uh, it's a NASA mission. It's called Psyche. Um, and by the way, Psyche is the Greek goddess of the soul. Uh, it's a very nice, very nice name. Um, but the, the, the thinking now, uh, which comes from uh, research in the University of Arizona, uh, is that uh, it's, its density is too low for it to be the solid metal core 
of a protoplanet. And what, ah. they're, what they're saying is, uh, it's, in fact, they're turning it round. They're talking about porosity. Porosity is, if you think of something like a piece of pumice, uh, the porosity is the amount of empty space that's within it. Uh, and the porosity of 16 Psyche has now been measured to be about 35%, which means that 35% of its bulk is empty space. And that doesn't really tally with the idea of uh, a metallic, uh, the metallic core of a, of a protoplanet, uh, unless it's kind of more solid in the middle and it's just a bit frothy on the outside, which I guess is a possibility. Um, but yeah. th- this, that sort of detail is... Uh, is probably not something we'll really get to see until the Psyche spacecraft gets there. It will go into orbit around Psyche. I can't remember when, but it's in a few years' time. Uh, And Mm. hopefully will give us much more detail. In fact, we'll get a very precise measurement of its density from that and as well as much else besides. So, so yeah, watch this space is the answer there. Um, It's a, yeah, interesting story. Yeah, uh, have they been able to compare it to... Other objects that um, yes, might they, be they similar? Have. Yeah, that's a, a good question. Thank you for, for raising that because there's been a suggestion that it might actually be a rubble pile. Um, and oh. we, we know of many rubble piles. Um, in fact, two of them have been visited by uh, spacecraft recently, uh, Bennu and... Uh, <laughs> What was it called? Ryugu, the other one. Bennu and Ryugu. That's it. Um, They uh, are, in fact, spacecraft are on their way back to Earth with samples from both those asteroids. They are, uh, they're rubble piles. They're just, you know, debris that's bound together uh, quite loosely. Uh, But they have porosities more than 50%, uh, which says that half the the space, half of the asteroid is empty space inside it. Uh, Mm. Psyche is not at that level, but it it does make them wonder if maybe what we're seeing is, you know, is 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 perhaps the metallic core of a protoplanet as was originally thought, but maybe with a rubble pile on top of it or, or something like that. Um, it's yeah, very interesting, very interesting stuff. Oh, very much so, and I can't wait for those samples to come back because uh, it'll just add more uh, pieces to the puzzle that is our solar system and and the universe. And uh, it makes me wonder if if aliens ever sent a probe down to Earth and took samples back, they'd probably end up with an old KFC box and a hamburger <laughs> wrapper. So. <laughs> Hopefully we won't be disappointed. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, you know, maybe the old V8 engine or something that's been thrown away because yeah, it's maybe, worn out. Maybe. <laughs> maybe, yeah. Anyway, uh, more to learn from uh, uh, Asteroid uh, 16 Psyche, we hope. Uh, we've just got to be a bit patient, as you've got to be when it comes to space travel and, and space research and astronomy. Nothing ever happens too quickly. Uh, You're listening to the Space Nuts podcast with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson. Roger, you're live, sir, here also. Space Nuts. And welcome back. Thanks for your company here on the Space Nuts podcast, episode 257 with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson. And a big hello to our Space Nuts podcast group on Facebook. If you have not joined yet, you Auto because they're um, a great bunch of people. There's about uh, nearly 2,000 members of the Space Nuts podcast group uh, on Facebook. Just do a search for Space Nuts podcast group 
It's a group of uh, listeners who decided that uh, it'd be great to get online and talk to each other and ask each other questions. Uh, sometimes they post um, unusual things, different things. Uh, I think one of our most recent posts was actually a piece of poetry um, by Lord Byron titled Darkness, which has um, got a, a bit of an astronomical connection. So, uh, and, and people are, uh, have been discussing that. Um, following up to last week's episode, Fred, when we were trying to talk about those Pentagon photos and videos of UFOs, uh, that's become a discussion point on the podcast group. Mm, and uh, it's just some wonderful images that people take themselves through their own telescopes or um, uh, you know, major stories that are breaking. Uh, there's a story about uh, Ganymede as photographed by Juno. Uh, so you, you can all get together and, and meet each other and chat, and I, I think friends uh, friendships have been forged through the Space Nuts podcast group, and uh, I would encourage you to join up if you haven't already and meet, meet some like-minded people. It's, uh, it's terrific. Uh, we've got some filters in there now because we used to, we were getting pretty heavily spammed there for a while, but uh, I think that's eased off a bit. Still one or two get through to the keeper, but um, I, I've got the gloves on and I've been dealing with them. And, and look, I want to say thank you to those uh, vigilant members of the Space Nuts podcast group who actually alert me to some of the junk that gets... Um, and it's space junk that gets thrown into the uh, the mix. So I appreciate those alerts because I can't watch it twenty four hours a day. But uh, it, it's um, it's good that you're on ready alert. Now, uh, Fred, let's uh, move on to the mystery of the dipping of the brightness of Beetlejuice or Beetlegeese or old geezer <laughs> or whatever whatever you want to call this particular star. Uh, but um, overnight, our time um, this morning. They have um, released a, a statement. They think they know what's happening here. Indeed, they do. And they, in this case, is the European Southern Observatory, uh, whose telescopes are in northern Chile. And in particular, these are the telescopes, the four unit telescopes of the what's called the VLT, the Very Large Telescope, even though it's four. And in fact, it was joined by four more for this as well to link up to make um, a kind of array of telescopes. Um, yes, yeah, so uh, the, the, the great dimming, it's sometimes called, of uh, Betelgeuse or Betelgeuse or however you want to pronounce it, uh, which is the, the bright star on the shoulder of Orion. Uh, and it's a red star, it's a red supergiant star. It, it dimmed late in 2019 and during mm. early 2020. And of course, normally um, when we observe stars, all we see is a point of light. Um, now, Betelgeuse is one of the few stars that you can actually resolve into a disk with very large telescopes. Uh, it's, it's a supergiant, so it's, it's big, and it's also only about 500 light years away. And that's a long way, but still, uh, you know, it's still near enough that um, you can actually resolve its disk. But you need specialist equipment and you need facilities like um, uh, an instrument called Sphere on the uh, very large telescope and there's also something called VLTI which is the a thing called an interferometer which makes the telescope a little bit like a radio array where you spread dishes over a, an area uh, and y you know you mimic a much larger telescope and that's how they can operate uh, the VLT um, so yep. we now have this series of observations that have been uh, released by uh, scientists uh, using uh, the the VLT uh, I think um, 
Uh, the lead part of this uh, research has come from uh, uh, l'Observatoire de Paris, uh, the Paris Observatory, and also um, the one of the obser- one of the institutions in Belgium. So it's a European publication, but it uses a facility that Australian astronomers have access to, courtesy of the uh, mm. the strategic partnership that we have. So what's happened? Well, we've been we've seen the release overnight, as you said, of a series of images of Betelgeuse. Uh, taken over that period when it was getting, when it was dimming and growing brighter. And they show quite clearly that what we're seeing is uh, dust around the star. Um, Dust which has produced a drop in temperature on parts of the surface uh, of Betelgeuse and given us this darkening. And uh, that shows up very clearly in these images. And um, what they do, in some ways, they're reassuring because one of the possibilities for the dimming of Betelgeuse was that it was about to turn into a supernova. Um, yes. We, we, we know that one day this star will turn into a supernova. It's, it's a candidate for it. But, um, you know, we're talking about over the next 10,000 to 100,000 years. And um, we, we've, we've never seen what happens to a star in the immediate, um, uh, well, immediately before it explodes as a supernova. And one of the, a lot of the theoretical work that's been done on it suggests that it would dim to start with. So uh, that's mm. one of the thoughts that maybe we're about to see this star um, become the brightest object in the in the sky, perhaps even brighter than the full moon. It would be certainly visible during the day, um, but um, it looks as though that's not the case. That what we're seeing is actually is actually dust. Um, and yeah, I, I encourage um, you know space nutters to to have a look uh, online. There's a science release from the European Southern Observatory, which has got a gobbledygook URL. But um, just um, you know, putting putting into uh, your search engine uh, Betelgeuse dip in brightness, it will take you straight there, and you can see this series of images which shows uh, dust veiling the surface of the pla- of the of the star. Yeah, I, I find, it's funny when you alerted me to the story, and I and I went to the website first thing this morning. I read the headline: "Mystery of Betelgeuse's Dip in Brightness Solved," and I went, "I bet it's dust." <laughs> and that's before I started reading. I, just oh, went, I yeah. bet it's dust. But uh, as I, you should, <laughs> and be, it was, you should be on but, the uh, team. <laughs> as I read through it, <laughs> I I, uh, I also read that um, it may have ejected like a, a giant gas bubble and th- that is part of the reason this has happened. Yes, that's, um, that's right. It, yeah. it, I mean, this, you know, this star is big enough to incorporate, the, I think the, the orbit of Mars will be inside it if it's where the sun was, maybe not quite as much as that. It's a, it's a giant star. Wow. And, and its outer regions are... <clears throat> Excuse me. They're barely hanging on, if I can put it that way, and it's cool enough that it, it it's you know it makes dust basically. This is uh, the carbon and the silicon and things they actually solidify because it's cool enough to do it for that to happen. So you get clouds of dust, um, but also as mm. you say, bubbles of gas, which which are part of 
the the normal process of 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 a star's life that the, the sun does that there's, there's a zone beneath its visible surface which we call the convection zone and it's where bubbles of gas are rising to the surface but it's much more energetic and much more active in a star like the sun with a surface temperature of uh, about 5500 degrees uh, betelgeuse is much cooler and these and the energy levels are much lower so you just got these giant bubbles of gas that sort of uh, that you know they they're just they're, they're like they're like uh, cool teenagers wandering through a city center <laughs> what's happening dude they just wander wander through the through, through the atmosphere of the star and um and, and don't do very much but they they do shrink and swell uh, and so it it, it suggests yeah. exactly as you've said that at some point um the, the, the there was a gas bubble that actually was ejected by the by the the star and when that bubble of gas gets far enough from the star's surface, it cools down enough, as I said a minute ago, that you can you can actually get solid dust condensing from from the gas, and that's what what seems to have happened. Mm. In fact, okay. there's a, sorry, um, uh, there's a nice quote from one of the authors. Forgive me, I, I didn't mean to. I, I meant to read this earlier. Uh, that's okay. uh, we've directly witnessed the formation of so-called stardust. The dust expelled from cool, evolved stars, such as the ejection we've just witnessed, could go on to become the building blocks of terrestrial planets and life. It's a very nice uh, quote. Wow. And that's true. And, that, and they'll just start to establish life and then the thing will go supernova. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> but that then uh, enriches the, the... Yeah. Actually... Yeah. It enriches the medium uh, more with with other he heavier elements when you've got a supernova forming. That's where our gold came from. <clears throat> yes. Uh, now, it, you said it's 500 light years away. So it's, I guess, theoretically possible that it um, might have gone supernova 499 <laughs> yes. years ago and in a year's time we will see something <clears throat> extraordinary. Yes, that's right. Uh, it's always possible. Uh, and um, mm. yeah, that will be that will be big news. Uh, Beetlejuice turning into supernova. It's not, <clears throat> excuse me, it's not um, thought to be uh, a life-threatening event. I mean, you you know that nearby supernovae irradiate the region around them with uh, well gamma rays and uh, as well as uh, neutrinos and things of that sort. Um, and that will all KFC yeah, boxes, KFC boxes, uh, old V eight cylinder blocks, a whole lot. Yeah, they, the, 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 you know, they. <laughs> sorry, I'm a bit fixated on those today, but they, they <laughs> I don't know why. The the the, um, the 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 radiation that would come from Betelgeuse turning into a supernova apparently is not enough to threaten our well being here on Earth. But it would still be nice to be on the other side of the planet when it happens. <laughs> Yes, I would hope so. Yeah, and it would be visible to the naked eye. I imagine this would be this would be huge. Yeah. Yes, it would. Oh, very bright. I think um, if I remember rightly from things I've read before, about maybe half the brightness of a full moon. So it would certainly be visible during the day. Yeah, extraordinary. Well, I kind of hope it happens, but I hope <laughs> Me it doesn't. Too. <laughs> I, I'd love to witness something yeah, like that. Yeah, I really yeah, would, yeah. but. Um, Maybe maybe yes, somewhere yes, else. Somebody else's solar system. <laughs> mm. Sorry, somebody else's galaxy. That's right. All right. <laughs> yeah. So the mystery is solved. The dipping of brightness is just dust. Bit disappointing, really. You're listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Andrew Dunkley here with Fred Watson. Zero G, and I feel fine. Space Nuts.
Yes, the great John Glenn there. Um, zero G and I feel fine. I love that line. Uh, and thanks for listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Now, don't forget, uh, if you would like to become a patron, uh, you can do that via our website, spacenutspodcast.com. Click on the supporter button and you can learn all about uh, ways of uh, you know, giving us a little bit of uh, financial support, whether you do it through Patreon or Supercast or through our shop. Uh, click on the shop button. Uh, all these uh, great new products available uh, and you know, some of it's actually pretty cool stuff, but you know, some of it's pretty dorky as well. Although I did speak to someone the other day that's going get to a, get a pair of flip-flops for the coming northern summer, uh, which would be about now. So, um, yes, uh, there's just a whole array of stuff available at the shop. But if you want to um, you know, just take it to the next level and make a, a monthly contribution, and you can start as low as $4.50, uh, you can become a patron, and uh, we certainly are very, very um, thankful to our patrons uh, for supporting the Space Nuts podcast. The the idea of um, uh, of patrons actually came from the audience, so uh, we we thank uh, everybody who's uh, supported us in that way. Now, uh, Fred, we have some questions from the audience, and our first one uh, it's a sort of a a what if scenario from uh, Nate in Oregon. Hi, Fred and Andrew. This is Nate from Oregon. Okay, so 10 years ago, give or take, um, I heard that if dead center of the United States, a sun the size of a pinhead were to suddenly just pop up, it would instantaneously fry most of the central United States. So let's say for some inexplicable reason this suddenly happens, what would be the actual effect and what would be the global effect on, let's say, like if it was just for a split second the sun was there to uh, maybe a few hours? What would ultimately happen? Because I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around that. Like it seems like total nonsense, but then it also makes sense at the same time because it's a lot of heat we're dealing with. If you could enlighten me and let me know, uh, I'd be very grateful. Thank you. Thank you, Nate. I love what-if questions. It reminds me of a book by an Australian science fiction author uh, named John Birmingham. Uh, in fact, I've got the book right next to me down here somewhere in my pile of science fiction novels. But um, he wrote a, a – it was he writes trilogies. But this one was, um, um, I think, called After America, and it was about this uh, mysterious blob that came out of space and basically wiped out all of North America and part of Canada and Mexico. And the book kind of moved on from there and talked about what happened to the world on a more politically and militarily motivated level. But, um, you know, that Nate's question kind of made me go back to that thought and 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 how the world dealt with the fallout of America being wiped off the face of the earth now that's that's not the scenario Nate's talking about he actually wants to know what would happen physically if a tiny little sun appeared for a few hours in the middle of the United States what would be the effect uh, probably not dissimilar to what John Birmingham wrote about I would expect yeah just as an afterthought or a, a postscript to that comment, Andrew, I once did a gig with John Birmingham. Did you? 
speaking gig, yeah. I love Brisbane, the way I he writes. I, I, he's, he, and, uh, he inspired me to write some of the novels I've written, I must say. There you go, yeah. What I was going to say was, like you, he's a really nice guy. Oh, <laughs> that's nice lovely. Chap. Yeah, it was a, it was a very nice um, event. I can't remember what it was, but, but mm. we were, there were two of us on the stage, you know, probably talking. Yeah, I'm just Sometimes trying um, to find it. Hang people... on. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> There you go, John Birmingham after America. That's, yeah, that's the one to read, Nate. If you're watching fact, us if you're on YouTube, you can. Yeah, that's what it looks <laughs> yes. like. Uh, oh, sorry, that's right. Yes, a lot I thicker than my that. novels, I must say. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's good, and um, no, it was it was an enjoyable event. As I say, it was quite a few. It's probably a decade ago now, but it was mm. it was good stuff. So, a really interesting point. So, what are we talking about here, though? Are we talking about just a pinhead that's as hot as the sun? Um, or are we talking about something that has the mass of the sun shrunk into a ping pad? Because they're very different scenarios. They are. Um, and the first one is uh, is fine because, um, you know, there are many physics experiments that recreate uh, over small volumes of space, recreate the temperature of the sun. Uh, uh, and in fact, um, even higher, um, you know, the ITER uh, uh, experiment in southern France is a nuclear fusion reactor which is still being built, uh, and it's to try and recreate what happens within the uh, within the centre of the sun. Uh, nuclear fusion, which is a very prolific source of energy that doesn't need much fuel, and it's a lot safer than nuclear fission, which is what all nuclear power stations use at the moment. So um, uh, that's, of course, it's well controlled in um, in uh, in the, in the Provence, which is where the where the ITER reactor is, uh, and it's not likely to swallow up anything. But uh, it, it, that's 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 just saying that you can create something the temperature of the sun, even the interior of the sun, which is in the region of ten million degrees Celsius. Uh, yeah. That's that's actually what's going on there. But something shrunk to a pinhead of the mass of the sun, that's a different kettle of fish. Because that is effectively a black hole. Um, a pin, a black oh. hole by definition has zero dimensions. But a one solar mass black hole um, is a very interesting prospect dumped in the United States. The first thing is you wouldn't be able to see it because uh, it would have an event horizon. There would be a dark sphere around it. Uh, now, if the sun was a black hole its event horizon would be about six kilometres in diameter. Mm. Uh, so um, that, uh, that would be the nearest you could get to it. But even before you got anywhere near it, you and all your surroundings, including, <laughs> you know, including the United States and uh, probably most of the Earth, they'd be spaghettified. Um, they would feel yep. this gravitational attraction changing so quickly that things that were nearer to it uh, would feel a much greater uh, gravitational attraction than things nearby, uh, the things further away. And essentially, the, you know, the Earth would turn into an accretion disk. It would be, be, it would be the debris disk surrounding this one solar mass black hole whose event horizon, as I said, was, um, was six kilometres in diameter. Um, just, just a quick aside here, Andrew, um, and, and I'm going to ask you to guess this. Uh, if the Earth was a black hole, can you guess what diametric's event horizon would be? If the Earth was a black yeah, hole, shrunk to a single point, mm. the mass of the Earth shrunk to a single point. It's got an event horizon that you can't see beyond. Any guesses? 
Well, you said the sun. The sun's six. Uh, one solar mass would be six, six kilometers. kilometers. That's right. So I would supposedly divide it by the difference between the mass of the Earth and the Sun, but then again, my brain is saying it's probably going to be six kilometres. Um, no, it's actually not, and and it's neither of those. It's a little bit more subtle. Um, it's actually uh, oh. it is um, eighteen millimetres. Uh, eighteen yeah, millimetres. So it's the size of a coin. <laughs> the event horizon. Right. Um, so yeah, there's, wow. there's a bit, it's, it's a it's actually the um, the Schwarz, the Schwarzschild radius, Schwarzschild to anglicise it, is two gm over c squared. <laughs> I work that out, um, and that that that's the radius of the event horizon. G is the gravitational constant. M is the mass that you're talking about. C is the speed of light. Uh, it's a very simple formula. And anybody who wants to follow up on this, just check out Schwarzschild radius on wiki um, on Wikipedia, and it will give you all this. But it also lists. Uh, the event horizon radius of um, many, many objects uh, in in the universe, including the sun and the earth. That's where I cribbed it from. But yeah, three, three, um, sorry, six kilometers for the sun, the event horizon. That's that's kind of what you might mm. expect. Um, but 18 millimetres to the Earth, for the Earth, it really is a bit feeble, isn't it? It's just, you know, to have an event horizon the size yeah, of a car. probably still would have some kind oh, of devastating would. fallout, it would, though, I would yeah, imagine. It would shred us, shred us all. Yeah. Um, so it's not a pretty sight, yeah. but a mm. uh, very interesting question. Thanks, Nate. It's good, good stuff. Yeah, Nate, um, uh, if you're a golfer, Nate, you'd be happy, though, <laughs> because if you're teeing off at the moment this happened, you'd get a hole in one. <laughs> So there's, there's a plus side. You would, your ball would be shredded. You wouldn't, you wouldn't be around long enough to pick up the bottle of scotch later, which is what our club gives you for a oh, hole in one. But um, anyway, <laughs> okay, Nate. Thanks for the question. Appreciate it. I, I love what if questions. So if anyone's got one of those, please send it in. We love to try and you know figure these things out or just have a bit of fun with them. Uh, now this this is uh, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show a personal question from Paul. Hello, friend Andrew. This is Paul from Pennsylvania. I have a question I think will be for both of you. I'll start with Fred. Fred, as a longtime professional astronomer, do you still get out and observe at home or around the house there? What kind of telescopes do you have and what are your go-to objects to look at? Same question for you, Andrew. I know you're a radio guy, but do you practice what you preach and get out and look at stars? Thanks a lot for all you guys do. Bye. Um, I'm going to take the fifth on this one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, all right. Well, that means I've got to take whatever the opposite of the fifth is. <laughs> um, the Fifth Amendment, yes. isn't it? Or the right yes, not to. No, that's right. Uh, we don't no, have we that don't. in Australia. No, I, knew, I knew what you were talking about, but I couldn't yeah. think of what. Um, free speech is probably the opposite, isn't it? That's the opposite of the Fifth Amendment. So, yep. yeah. So, look, the answer is um, yes. I started as a when I was a youngster as an amateur astronomer, and I've never really got over that. I've been a professional astronomer all my life, but I do still love playing around with um, small telescopes. Uh, Given that I used to be the astronomer in charge of the biggest telescope in the country, you'd think I'd be, you know, fixated by by large instruments. But I actually love the small ones. And in fact, the biggest telescope I have, which is currently in a in a somebody's cupboard at Siding Spring Observatory, it's not here in Sydney where I live, but it's a ten inch Dobsonian. That means it's it's an ancient one as well. It's very very rudimentary, but it it, it 
works. It gives nice views of, of planets and things of that sort. But the ones that I tend to use are, are actually smaller than that. So I've got a um, few favourites. Uh, one is an instrument. It's on loan, actually. It's called a Questar. And Questars were a little, uh, very early Maxutov Cassegrain telescopes, which is a, a fancy way of saying it's got both lenses and mirrors. Uh, they had an aperture, a diameter of three and a half inches, whatever that is in millimeters, uh, and um, it gives very nice views of the planets at a magnification of about ninety times. Um, and I also have a what you would once have called a rich field telescope. Uh, like the Questar, it's a fairly old idea. Questars go back to the 1960s, in fact. Uh, but a Richfield telescope is a usually a refracting telescope, one with a lens, and mine's a five inch, or, um, very nearly, I think it's 120, 120 millimeters, um, with a short focus so that you get really bright views of things like comets and, uh, and nebulae. Um, but um, uh, I've got a few little littler ones still that are very close to my heart. Small telescopes have a, some, somehow have an appeal to me. And of course, binoculars. Binoculars are great for looking at the sky, uh, especially if you've got a dark sky mm. um, wh where you can you just tr trawl through the, the star fields of the Milky Way. And um, well, my favourite objects tend to be what we call open clusters. These are clusters of stars that... Uh, are actually newly born clusters of stars. The best known one is the Pleiades. That's visible, of course, uh, from most of the world. Um, the Seven Sisters, it's usually known as uh, in the constellation of Taurus, the bull. But there are three in the Southern Hemisphere, which are actually certainly out of the view of most of mainland United States. They're dotted along the Milky Way. There is the Jewel Box, which is in the Southern Cross, there is something called the Southern Pleiades, which is in an asterism that we normally call the the the, the, um, um, the Diamond Cross, and uh, there is another object which has a doesn't have a, a, a red, readily available name, but it is NGC one six two five, I think, or maybe two five one six. I always get those the wrong way around, and it's a lovely star cluster in something we call the False Cross, and these are uh, asterisms along the Milky Way. Uh, so uh, mm. they're always very pretty. And whenever I get out with a telescope, uh, since they're v viewable th throughout most of the year from here in Australia, uh, I usually check them out just to see how they look um, because I think they're very beautiful. Well, uh, to, to answer Paul's question very quickly, I do not have a telescope. I do not have binoculars. But uh, I have been researching telescopes because I would love to have been able to take some pretty decent photos of the um, uh, lunar eclipse the other night, the blood moon. Uh, I did so with a digital camera with 40 times optical zoom and I got a, I got a few good shots, but I was dissatisfied and I would have loved to have been able to use something a bit more substantial to, um, to take a couple of um, really good photos to, to publish. And I guess that's my goal. I'm, I'm researching telescopes that will enable me to do that. And I'm going to call on you, Fred, at some stage to advise me okay, because good. I'm going to put it on my Christmas list for this year because I think I, I, I've got a yeah. – I'm in a pretty dark part of the world. I know Dubbo has got streetlights, but they've dulled them uh, very significantly in recent years. And uh, in my backyard, I'm shielded from a fair bit of light, so it's sort of um, – become kind of a little um, dark zone in, in 
my particular part of town where I could um, point a, a telescope up without it getting, you know, sucking in light from the streets. But, you know, I, uh, I, I'm researching where I might go with this. But uh, as far as objects are concerned, well, you know what I love. I, I, I would love to just, um, you know, point it at the, uh, the planets in our solar system, uh, Mars, but, uh, you know, the, the gas giants. Uh, I've seen some photos uh, people have taken with their home telescopes of, of uh, Jupiter and its moons, and some of them are amazing what people have been able to do. And I, I think um, that's what sort of thrills me. Uh, the more near-Earth objects than than the, the the outer limits stuff but um yeah who knows once i get started i might get so hooked i'll be out there looking for everything i could possibly find so that's my plan anyway you probably mm. would mm. <laughs> um but your um eclipse photos were great andrew i think you you know you, you should be proud oh, of thank them you. Uh, considering especially as you said with a with a you know just a camera with a zoom lens uh, uh well, no and, it, it, um, it, i've got a it was just a digital camera i'll show it to you uh, i've got it right here yeah. hang on it's a, yep. It was it was this camera. <laughs> I mean, that's what I took yeah. those photos with. It's, it, that's it, a, um, it's a a little Canon uh, with forty times yep. optical zoom. So um, that's all yeah. I used, and, and yeah. I didn't even have it on a tripod. So I handheld, and it did a fabulous job. It is a great little cam. That yeah, it's amazing. Perfect it's amazing. for holiday snap. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I, great stuff. Well, I've got to get, get my earpiece back in hooked. now because I had to pull it out to get the camera. There we go. I'm back in business. But, um, yeah, I, I think, uh, yeah, I'd love to um, do something a little bit more substantial in, in terms of observing mm. and photographing the night sky. That, um, that's, that could be a hobby that would keep me outside for hours and hours, which would thrill my wife no end. Um, seeing golf already does that on my weekends. But uh, yeah, yes, yeah, uh, no, I appreciate yeah. the question, uh, Paul. Thank you so much. It's nice to get uh, one of those occasionally as well. Uh, I think we're going to have to wrap it up, Fred. Don't forget, though, if you've got a yeah, question, you like can it. Uh, send it to us uh, through our website, spacenutspodcast.com. Just click on the AMA link. Uh, you can send us questions through the email interface or you can record them yourself by just pressing the record button. If you've got a microphone in whatever device you use, it will pick your voice up and just tell us who you are, where you're from, and ask your question. It's as simple as that. It'll all get uploaded and uh, Hugh puts them all together and sends them to us in one big dump once a year. Well, maybe a bit more often than that. <laughs> um, but we look forward to your next set of questions. That's where we leave it. Fred, thank you so much. Great pleasure. Um, good to talk to you, as always, Andrew. And uh, have a good week, and we'll speak again next week. Indeed we will. Thank you. Uh, Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large, part of the team here at the Space Nuts podcast, and uh, hello to Hugh in the studio who pushes all the buttons and turns all the lights on and off. It doesn't achieve anything. He just does it because, you know, he's just <laughs> wired that way. Uh, and from me, Andrew Dunkley, thanks again for listening and following the Space Nuts podcast. We look forward to, uh, forward to your company next time. Bye-bye. Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes, Audioboom and Stitcher or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Sites.com.